Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 35, Soviet Feud. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Bleed when we bleed. Commit postal fraud when we commit postal fraud. And today I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 22, Blood Feud. It first aired on July the 11th, 1991. A massive two-month gap from the last episode. Mm, and I'm very excited this week to finally tell the story of the attempted coup in the Soviet Union, which occurred on August 18th, 1991. It's a fair few weeks after Blood Feud first aired, but it's right between Series 2 and 3 of The Simpsons, so it's the perfect time to talk about it. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So this airs on July 11th, 1991, as I mentioned, a whole two months after Three Men and a Comic Book, and there is some thought to be given around whether this counts as Season 2 or Season 3. It was in the production block for Season 2, as evidenced by its production number of 7F22, and it is on the Season 2 DVDs. I mean, it's definitely Season 2, retrospectively so, Mm -hmm. although in later seasons the production blocks will become a little less season-related. But especially at the time this aired, you could be forgiven for thinking it was season three, as this aired as part of Fox's premiere week. Essentially a gimmick to try to extend the primetime season of television, which is regarded to last 30 weeks, or certainly was at the time, and not really extend into summer, as people would be out doing stuff. This led plenty to think that it was the season three premiere, as it had been two months since what appeared to be the last episode of season two, which Fox advertised as, and considered to be the last episode of Season 2. But there's actually another two-month gap until the Season 3 premiere proper. (sighs) Stark raving dad. So we can't even judge from that. Mm. We have to leave it to the DVD releases to clear this up once and for all, and it's on Season 2, so I'm saying it's Season 2. But given the gap, we Mm. must have a new UK number one, right? Well, yes. And like seemingly most of 1991, it is Brian Adams with Everything I Do, I Do It For You. Yes, get in. Brian Guy Adams. Guy, a very uh, traditional Canadian name, of course. uh, Who was born in Canada to British parents, making him the Lennox Lewis of adult-oriented rock had seemed to a young Gareth Hirons to have fallen off a cliff after his first flourish of fame back in the mid-80s with the inescapable singles Run To You, Heaven, and, for some reason, still popular student anthem Summer of 69. Oh, yeah. Which would have sent me mad had I heard it just one more time during university. (laughs) But yeah, suddenly he was back with this, and at number one to boot. And then he just wouldn't go away. This song spent 16 unbroken weeks at number one. That is... That is insane. That is four months. Four Four solid months. months, Which is a record in the UK singles chart. Now, Frankie Lane's, I believe, spent 18 weeks at number one, but that was not in an unbroken run. 
So this song has spent the second most total weeks at number one as well. Yeah. And spent 25 weeks on the chart in total. Mm. In fact, this song will still be number one when The Simpsons returns for season three in September 1991. <laughs> and yet, oddly, it is not in the top ten best-selling UK singles of all time. No, no. The song was the love theme from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which was a massive big deal of a film at the time that no one really talks about anymore. I've not got past the first few minutes. I don't generally find medieval films that engaging, so that's not a surprise, really. People tell me Alan Rickman's good as the Sheriff of Nottingham, so that's something. I, I, I haven't seen it. From what I know, it's just a very mediocre American fantasy film. But I believe it's the inspiration for the for the Eddie Izzard routine where he talks about Robin Hood having an American accent. Almost certainly, yes. It was Costner, wasn't it? Kevin Costner was... Um... Oh, now, now you're asking me. I'm not sure. I mean, that, that's something I could easily have looked up beforehand and didn't. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, I, I have it on good authority. It's Kevin Costner. So mm-hmm. uh, excellent. Yeah, so Costner, Rickman, American accents, Nottingham. Yeah, give it a miss. Give it a miss. Although it did mean I couldn't really enjoy Robin Hood Men in Tights because I didn't know what they were meant to be lampooning. So, um, you know, swings and roundabouts. Anyway, the US viewership on this episode was a Nielsen of 10.8, 24th in the ratings for the week, and the second highest rated show on Fox after... Tom, want to give it a guess? Married with Children? No. What? Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, well, we're in a new era now, aren't we? Here comes a new challenger. Yep. yep. Uh, it did beat The Cosby Show again, uh, although The Cosby Show was a rerun, so the deck was stacked a little more against it than usual. Mm-hmm. The credited writer for this episode was George Meyer, who we discussed previously in episode 11, The Crepes of Lothar de Mezier, and the chalkboard gag was I Will Not Sleep Through My Education, and the couch gag was The Helpless Family Crashing Through the Floor. Mm-hmm. But what happened in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to the opening ceremony for the town's new nuclear disaster warning system, which consists of a single LED board with four settings. Relax, everything is fine. Minor leak, roll up window. Meltdown, flee city. And core explosion, repent sins. <laughs> Although as Homer points out with unexpected insight, if the core exploded, there wouldn't be any power for the sign anyway. What were they thinking? Oddly absent from proceedings is the man of the hour, one C. Montgomery Burns, who Smithers finds collapsed in his bedroom. The verdict? Hypohemia. Which, like many of the scientific terms we've heard in the show thus far, is entirely made up whilst being entirely plausibly named. Wikipedia said it was similar to a condition called hypovolemia, which is a state of decreased intravascular volume, for which the treatment is often the same as what Burns gets later in the episode. But I honestly don't know enough about the human body to tell you if that's a good match or not. Yeah, to be honest, I'm surprised to learn that hypohemia isn't a real thing, because it makes so much sense. Yeah. Hypo, as in a low amount of, or not enough of. Hemia, blood. Not enough blood. Yeah. That sounds perfectly plausible. Absolutely. Oh, well. So... As you may have guessed, Burns needs blood, specifically double O negative, but Smithers has a non-matching blood type, although Burns thanks him for his previous donation of a kidney, which immediately sent me to poorly research this on the internet, as I thought you had to share a blood type to give an organ to someone. 
I won't bore you with the details, but it is possible with certain combinations. However, yeah, I, I, I'm still calling him on that. Mm-hmm. The call for donors goes out across the power plant, and Homer is keen to cash in. You know, like in Hercules and the Lion. So at this stage, Homer asks Marge what his blood type is. And not only does she know that, but she proves to be a fountain of world-building, probably now retcon, random information about her family, and Tom, you know what comes next. I'll ask you the questions, you tell me what Marge gives as an answer. I'll try my best with this one, alright. Homer's blood type. A positive? I'm afraid not. Uh, It's B positive. Okay. Lisa's shoe size. Ah... No, I can't remember. And anyway, it's an American shoe size. They have different shoe sizes to us. True enough. I don't know. It's 4B. 4B, yeah. Uh, How many teeth does Bart have? Oh. (laughs) I don't know. The answer is 16 permanent and 8 baby. Uh, Homer's earmuff size, which I didn't know was a thing. Three. (laughs) I'm just guessing now. It's XL. Lisa's rings, it isn't made clear if that's the number she has or her ring size. Lisa's ring size, three. Yes, it is. It is three. Yay, I remembered something. But I don't want you wearing rings, it looks cheap. What is Bart allergic to? Ah, now I know that one. That's butterscotch and imitation butterscotch and glow-in-the-dark monster makeup. Yes, correct. A clean sweep. Uh, And finally, how many hairs on Homer's head? Uh, She doesn't say because she loves him however many hairs he's got. Exactly, yes. He has lots of hair. Mm -hmm. And of course she knows Bart's blood type is double O. So Homer has his cash cow after all. A fading Mr Burns, who is dictating his epitaph, receives the transfusion of Bart's blood and is right back on form immediately, wishing top of the morning to all and using a phrase that has ended many a conversation for me. How about that local sports team? (laughs) before taking part in the game of High Lie and essentially performing the old man version of a body form advert. Grateful to Bart, he sends him a thank you card. Homer sees this as a slight given the sheer magnitude of his gesture, by which of course we mean Bart's gesture, not Homer, but he's the one with the dollar signs in his eyes. And with Bart to egg him on, he decides to take his revenge in the form of a letter describing Burns as a buck-toothed old mummy with bony girl's arms and the smell of an elephant's butt. Mm-hmm. Marge is the voice of reason and actually convinces Homer not to send it straight away and to sleep on the decision. He rises after a dream of pancakes to find his rage assuaged, but the letter already posted by Bart. Which, of course, earns the guy with a rep for being rude a horrible strangling, before the two of them set off to weasel out of things. With Barney's encouragement, they consider giving the mailbox a hose-soaking of a lifetime, but a non-gun-toting postal worker shoes them away. This leads to an iconic moment in Simpsons history. Hello, my name is Mr Burns. I believe you have a letter for me. Okay, Mr Burns, uh, what's your first name? I don't know. (laughs) Classic. And my favourite bit of that, which I always forget, is that he's seen afterwards on the steps outside saying, Great plan, Bart. (laughs) Which makes it even more ridiculous that Homer tried it in the first place. It feels like a real step in the Simpsons brand of comedy, that. With yeah. more classics like that to come. Meanwhile, Mr Burns is working on his autobiography, Will There Ever Be a Rainbow? <laughs> and by working, I mean alienating Springfield's artistic community again, like in Brush With Greatness, as he falls out with a ghostwriter. 
Homer comes by to steal his mail, giving his fake name as Homer Simpson, but Burns opens the malicious missive and orders Smithers to send some hired goons for the personal touch. Hired goons? To crush Homer like an ant. But then Smithers can't bring himself to order the beating and pleads with Burns for mercy. Homer is drowning his sorrows in Moe when we finally get another Bart Crank call. (laughs) I feel like there's less of these than I remembered. Anyway, this one is for Mike Roch. He can't know it, but he actually has no sorrows to drown. Mr. Burns has changed his mind and is out shopping for a present. An extravagant present. A mad, unthinkable, utterly impossible present. A frabulous, grabulous, zip-zoop-zabulous present. And so it is that Mr. Burns presents the family with a $32,000 ancient Olmec head. A representation of the god Extapolatakettle. Oh, and a complimentary advanced copy of Will There Ever Be a Rainbow. Homer is still bitter that he didn't get what he sees as his just reward, but they can't seem to attach a moral to their tale, which is eventually framed as just a bunch of stuff that happened. <laughs> I could make a really bad joke about Olmec gods. I, I, I think you have to, having right. said that. Right, so Extapolotokettle is the god of war. Do you know who the Olmec god of procrastination was? Just putting on the kettle. Okay, nice. <laughs> nice. I'm like going to cut that out. <laughs> if you harm one second of that exchange. <laughs> Are you ready for the nearest thing I could find to a character debut in this? Uh, stop a lot of kettle? Because he does appear. Yes. In later shows. Yes. So bear with me on this one. In recent times, The Simpsons has become filled with continuity and callbacks. In the earlier seasons, this didn't happen so much, or if it did, it wasn't called out quite so heavily. So it's a bit of a novelty to find that the Olmec statue is glimpsed pretty regularly in the seasons that directly follow this. The head itself is said to be a representation of their god of war, but since the whole thing's made up, we should probably pay no attention to that. (laughs) It's seen almost exclusively in the basement. How they got it down there, I've no idea. Perhaps it fell through the floor in an off-screen adventure. (laughs) And because of this, any episode that requires there to be more space than usual in the basement tends to forget about it. But they do also move it a few times. First to the front lawn, hoping to shift it in the rummage sale in Season 7, Episode 13, Two Bad Neighbours, where it's probably better value than Mrs Glick's candy dish. (laughs) Outside again as part of the wall bisecting Springfield in Season 12, Episode 2, A Tale of Two Springfields. And unbelievably... It's seen in the attic in season 21, episode 13, The Colour Yellow. It's then destroyed by the sinkhole in the Simpsons movie, but has been seen again since. Now, I mentioned that there's more continuity these days. So at the start of season 29, episode 20, Throw Grandpa from the Dane, a surprisingly not too bad The Simpsons are going to Denmark episode, the house floods and we see Extapolatakettle float by. Obviously impossible. Uh, Yes. What else do we see float by? Bender Bending Rodriguez, the Mexican bending robot who has a starring role in Matt Groening's Futurama. Mm. In Simpsons canon, he is powered down in their basement, waiting for a thousand years to awake just after he travelled back in time to resume his normal life. And he too can be spied, much like, or sometimes even with Extapolatakettle, in basement scenes going forward. I mention this now as I might be dead by the time we get to the official Simpsons and Futurama crossover episode in many, many seasons' time. Yes. And also, would you believe, 
Extapolata Kettle has a backstory in the comics. To quote the Simpsons wiki, in the comics, the head was actually the home of an old Olmecian man whose sacred duty was to wait in the head until his god appeared to judge the world. Yeah, so there we go. Tom, for the last time this season, did you know? <laughs> okay. The story that Homer calls Hercules and the Lion and absolutely butchers <laughs> is actually a folk tale called Androcles and the Lion, which would go on to form part of Aesop's fables. It is... For the avoidance of doubt, not in the Bible. <laughs> in the post office, we see a very grand work of art that was inspired by Michael Melangelo's The Creation of Man, albeit with a more postal bent. The stores that Burns goes shopping in are thus. The brushes are coming, the brushes are coming. <laughs> Ruled to be too practical. Yeah. The Tamo Shanta collection, mm -hmm. too cutesy poo. Sweet Home Alabama, the store with things from Alabama, <laughs> to Cornwall. Wicked Excess, uh, in which uh, he describes a pool table, saying, I'm not going to turn his house into a saloon. Mm -hmm. And finally, Plunder Repeats, conversation pieces from around the world. <laughs> yeah. And finally, there's another Otto Sings the Instrumental Classics in here as well. Yes. This time, the incomparable Iron Man by Black Sabbath. Uh, it's also worth noting that this will recur partially uh, in Season 15, Episode 3, The President Wore Pearls, where Nelson will sing, I am Iron Man, na-na-na-na-na-na, vote for me. <laughs> That's actually quite funny. Yeah. If I ever need to get elected, well, no, I'll use elected by Alice Cooper, but I'll be, you know, for just, just short TV bursts, probably use that one. Yeah. Probably use that one. And that is the end of me talking about season two, which I'm sure everyone's quite glad about. And now on to classic retrospecticus fodder. Let's check in with the Soviets. Yes. Okay, Soviet Union. Back in the USSR, we're going to tell the story of the August coup that tried to remove our old mate Mikhail Gorbachev from power. So nowadays it's hard to believe that the USSR dominated the second half of the 20th century as one of the world's two superpowers... You know, Cold War and all that. But as we go into 2020, the USSR hasn't existed for over 28 years. So it's proper history this, this is now. So we've already talked about various episodes in the downfall of the USSR on previous shows. Episode 12, Krusty Gets the Singing Revolution, covered the breakaway from the Soviet Union of the Baltic states. That's Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. And in episode 15, we went over the life story of Mikhail Gorbachev himself. So before talking about the coup, we need to go over the conditions in which the coup arose. You know, why there was a coup in the first place. So the USSR was supposed to be a confederation of 15 states, of which Russia was by far the largest. So it's no surprise that people tended to use USSR and Russia interchangeably. In reality, it was for most of its existence a one-party state, with everything being controlled by whoever was at the top of the Communist Party. The individual states of the USSR had very little say in how they were run. However, once Mikhail Gorbachev took over, following the moribund premierships of Andropov and Chinenko, had to get them in, Hooray. things started to change with the much-fabled Glasnost and Perestroika. But how did these policies lead to a coup attempt? First thing to consider is the economic consequences of Glasnost and Perestroika, 
So trying to liberalise a command economy, you're always going to have some teething pains, essentially. And the economy of the USSR was in the toilet. Wages were low and food shortages were common. People had to queue to buy basic foodstuffs like bread, and inflation hit 300%. But the key thing that Glasnost and Perestroika changed was the balance of power. In the old days that communist conservatives yearned for, all the power was concentrated in the central institutions of the USSR, what's known as the centre. Throughout the late 80s, a series of events transpired that transferred power from the centre to the republics, and this would have a key role in the lead-up to the coup. So as well as power inside the Union, the USSR had recently lost a lot of power outside it. After World War II, the Soviets set up kind of a buffer zone across Eastern Europe, setting up puppet governments that would do Moscow's bidding. And for decades, the USSR followed the Brezhnev Doctrine, which meant that the tanks would roll in if any country in the Soviet bloc attempted to stray from communism. Thus, revolutions in East Germany, Hungary, and the famous Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia were crushed. However, the reforms under Gorbachev stopped this policy, meaning countries were, as Gorbachev put it, free to find their own paths to socialism. With the threat of Soviet intervention gone, the political landscape of Eastern Europe changed dramatically, following the revolutions of 1989. In fact, our first proper episode, Simpsons Roasting on a Romanian Revolution, covered the revolution against and execution of Nicolae Ceausescu, the former communist leader of Romania. By the time of the coup attempt, Poland, Hungary and Czechoslovakia had all abandoned communism, the Berlin Wall had fallen and Germany had been reunited. Communist hardliners were upset about this drop in power and prestige. And finally, in a general sense, there was democracy. So traditionally, communism and democracy do not mix. Gorbachev tried to introduce democracy by creating the Congress of People's Deputies. Its first election the 750 deputies from all over the Soviet Union, took place on March 26, 1989, with 85% of the candidates being from the ruling Communist Party. So, you know, it was very much a sort of very gentle introduction. Yeah, we'll allow a few non-communists in. So on March 14, 1990, after many heated debates where Gorbachev threatened to resign, the deputies elected Mikhail Gorbachev president with a slim two-thirds majority of just 46 votes. So, while Mikhail Gorbachev was implementing reforms and transitioning from general secretary to president of the Soviet Union, another reformer was gaining power in Russia, one Boris Yeltsin. Ah, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Now, it's easy to think of Boris Yeltsin as a comical silver-haired souse who dragged himself into an early grave... Fun, too. Yes. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen that footage of him dancing. It was about 1995, I think. he just recovered from an operation or something. And yet he's on stage with this band and he's doing this weird, sort of ridiculously energetic dance. Not something you expect someone who's just recovered from major surgery to be able to do. But yeah, that is a lot of people's enduring memory of him. But he was fundamental in the breakup of the Soviet Union and the establishment of the independent nations that followed, including, of course, Russia. Now, Boris Yeltsin, like Gorbachev, was born in the Soviet Union, which is unusual for most of the Soviet leaders. He was born in Sverdlovsk in 1931 to parents who were peasant farmers. His grandfather was denounced as a kulak, you know, so wealthy peasants. So he's denounced as a kulak and exiled to Siberia, where he died when Yeltsin was just five years old. 
Shortly afterwards, his father was arrested, accused of anti-Soviet agitation, and sentenced to three years in a labour camp. And this happened during the Great Famine. So despite all this, the young Yeltsin survived and ended up going to a polytechnic to study engineering. It wasn't until 1961 that he joined the Communist Party. And over the years, he rose up the ranks. Probably his most notable duty came in 1977, where he was ordered to demolish Ipatiev House, the scene of the execution of Tsar Nicholas II and the rest of the imperial family by revolutionaries in 1917. In 1981, Yeltsin became a full member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. After Gorbachev took over in 1985, he started to assemble a young team to invigorate the ailing Soviet Union. He made Yeltsin his Secretary of Construction, a powerful position within the Central Committee. I can't imagine a young Yeltsin. I think that's mm. the problem I'm having with this. Ever picturing him youthful. He would have been. He would have been. But, 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 but yeah, he didn't really change massively in appearance from the mid-80s to the late 90s. Mm. Well, until he died, basically. And this is young in sort of top-level political terms as well, isn't it? So, Oh, yeah. Uh, we're talking like 60 rather than 80. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, Gorbachev was, I think, 55, 56, something like that, when he took over, and he was considered incredibly young. Mm. But they wanted a leader who wasn't going to die of old age within a <laughs> year of being appointed. So anyway, shortly after he got on the Central Committee... He was made first secretary of the Moscow City Committee of the Communist Party, a position that would have been the equivalent of the mayor of Moscow. Yeltsin started to cultivate an image of a man of the people, gaining a reputation for firing corrupt officials and taking a trolley bus to work. Yeah, taking a bus to work. I guess that shows I'm their friend. One of those. However, the job also came with a purpose-built thatcher, a level of luxury high above that of the average Soviet citizen. God, I really thought you said purpose-built Thatcher then. <laughs> I thought we'd been through all that. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> so Yeltsin was arguably a bigger reformer than Gorbachev. As mayor of Moscow, he tolerated things that his predecessors wouldn't, including unauthorised demonstrations. At a 1987 meeting of the Politburo, he was reprimanded by the communist hardliner Yegor Legachev for his liberal behaviour. The day afterwards, he wrote a letter of resignation to Gorbachev, who was on holiday on the Black Sea. This was unprecedented as no one had ever tried to resign from the Politburo before. In the October Politburo meeting, Yeltsin spoke out angrily against Gorbachev, frustrated that the issues raised in his resignation letter weren't addressed. Essentially, Yeltsin made a fool of himself in front of the Politburo, but not with the people of Moscow. Once they heard of his actions, that only enhanced his reputation as a rebel and man of the people. The entire Politburo was against Yeltsin, and Gorbachev called a meeting for November 11th. On November 9th, Yeltsin appeared to attempt to commit suicide, and he was rushed to hospital with self-inflicted chest wounds. Despite this, Yeltsin was dragged from his hospital bed to the meeting, where his dismissal from his role as mayor of Moscow was confirmed. Later, he was demoted to first deputy at the State Committee for Construction and stripped of his position on the Politburo, despite writing his resignation letter, no wonder then that Yeltsin had a strong disliking for Gorbachev. After this, the state media carried out a smear campaign against him. They reported that he was drunk during a speech in the USA, and he got so inebriated that he fell off a bridge on the way back to his hotel. As Boris Yeltsin was now revered as an anti-establishment figure, stories such as this only added to his popularity. I mean, for me, it reminds me of 
Boris Johnson. Yeah, yeah, to a certain extent. Similar hairstyle as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we won't go there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Yeltsin took advantage of Gorbachev's political reforms to work his way back to power. He stood for election to the Congress of People's Deputies in the election of March 26, 1989, and he won 92% of the votes in his Moscow district. Two months later, the Congress elected him to a seat at the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union. In 1990, Yeltsin turned his attention from the Soviet Union to Russia. On March 4, 1990, he stood for election to the Congress of People's Deputies of Russia, winning the Sverdlovsk district with 72% of the vote. He went on to be elected chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. Got all that in one go. <laughs> essentially making him the leader of Russia. In June 1990, Russia declared itself sovereign, and a few weeks later, Yeltsin publicly resigned from the Communist Party at the 28th Party Congress. So, you know, this couldn't be any more grandstanding, essentially. In June 1991, Russia held elections for President of the Republic, which Yeltsin won with 52% of the vote, easily beating Gorbachev's preferred candidate, Nikolai Rizkov, who got just 16%. With Russia looking like it would split from the Union and the singing revolution in the Baltic states in full swing, Gorbachev proposed the Union of Sovereign States, a loose confederation intended to keep the Soviet Union together, but under a different guise. A group of communist hardliners had had enough. Vladimir Kryuchchov, the chairman of the KGB, drew up plans to declare a state of emergency and remove Gorbachev from power. Following the intense discussions around the new Union Treaty, Gorbachev decided to take himself and his family on holiday to his dacha in Forus, on the Crimean Peninsula, on August 4th. While he was away, Kryuchkov recruited senior Soviet figures into his conspiracy. These included Dmitry Yazov, the defence minister, the Internal Affairs Minister Boris Pugo, the Premier Valentin Pavlov, the Deputy Chief of the Defence Council Oleg Baklanov, and arguably, most importantly, Gennady Yanayev, Gorbachev's Deputy and Vice President. Together, they formed the State Committee on the State of Emergency. Because that's how things happened in the Soviet Union. You, you had to have committees and boards and all that sort of thing. Meanwhile in Foros, Gorbachev would have known something was up because the Dacha's phone lines were cut. This must have been terrifying because that's what happened when Nikita Khrushchev was overthrown by Leonid Brezhnev. On August 18th, a delegation from the emergency committee flew to the Crimea to confront Gorbachev with the intention that he would sign a document confirming his resignation due to health grounds, leaving the emergency committee in control of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev refused and essentially stared the committee down. Not sure what to do next, the delegation flew back to Moscow and left KGB men at the Dacha to guard Gorbachev. Back in Moscow, tanks were on the streets. The emergency committee held a press conference to explain what was going on, and that Gorbachev was incapacitated due to his ill health. They ended freedom of the press and took non-state-owned radio off the air. When the coup started, Boris Yeltsin was at his Dacha just outside Moscow. For whatever reason, the plotters did not arrest him and he was allowed to travel to the Russian White House, the home of the Russian parliament. This is considered to be the worst mistake of the plot. Another major mistake the plotters made was to fail to get all of the military on their side before taking action. When Yeltsin got to the White House, tanks were everywhere, but some in the army were loyal to him. He stood on top of a tank and condemned the coup, calling for a general strike. 
During the coup, something happened that hadn't taken place in the Soviet Union for some time. The people rose up and took to the streets to oppose the coup. In Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, hundreds of thousands were out in force. In Moscow, similar numbers were out on the streets, and thousands volunteered to construct makeshift barricades around the White House. There was an extremely tense standoff between the people and the military. The plotters still wanted to take power, but the military leaders knew that if they took the White House by force and arrested Yeltsin, they could have the blood of thousands on their hands. On the evening of the 19th of August, the people dug in around the White House, convinced that an attack could come any moment. Yeltsin was holed up in a bunker underneath the building. While the crowd and the army waited with bated breath, a moral boost for Yeltsin came from an unlikely source. British Prime Minister John Major. (laughs) This is true. When Major heard about the coup, he tried to ring the White House to get in touch with Yeltsin. Amazingly, he got through, possibly as a testament to the incompetence of the plotters. You know, don't leave your opponent's base with phone lines. Yeltsin and Major had a conversation where Major stated his support for Yeltsin and the Russian people. This message was then broadcast to the crowd. It gave them a boost because they knew that the world was watching and they were not alone. At noon the next day, General Kalinin, the military commander of Moscow, declared a curfew that would take effect at 11 o'clock that evening. During the day, the hesitant emergency committee finally agreed to attack the White House. They gave the plan the name Operation Grom, or Operation Thunder. During the night, an event happened that changed everything. At roughly one in the morning, street cleaners and trolleybuses tried to stop troop carriers from proceeding through a tunnel on the approach to the White House. Dmitry Komar attempted to cover an observation slit, and he was shot and then run over. Vladimir Yusov, an unarmed civilian, was also shot dead coming to Komar's aid. The crowd set fire to one of the troop carriers, and the troops inside essentially shot their way out. Ilya Krychevsky was killed in this incident. The deaths of the three men completely changed the tone as it went from potential to actual bloodshed. The attack was called off, and the tanks began to move out at 8am the next morning. This put the coup into total disarray. They met the next day and decided to send another delegation to Gorbachev. When they arrived, Gorbachev humiliated them by refusing to talk to them. By this time, the communication lines had been restored, and Gorbachev declared all orders from the emergency committee null and void. He also sacked everyone who was involved in the coup, in order for the USSR prosecutors to investigate it. Overall, the coup was a disaster for the plotters. The delegation sent to the Crimea flew back to Moscow, and they were all arrested upon landing. Boris Pugo, the interior minister who appeared in the centre of the emergency committee's press conference, was telephoned by the Russian prosecutors and shot himself dead immediately afterwards. His wife also died of gunshot wounds, but the authorities couldn't agree on whether the wounds were self-inflicted or delivered by Pugo before he killed himself. As well as Pugo, Gorbachev's military advisor Sergei Akramayev and Central Committee member Nikolai Krichina also killed themselves. The rest of the plotters spent 18 months in jail awaiting trial before being granted an amnesty by the Russian Federation in 1994. Rather than re-establish the authority of the centre, the coup accelerated the breakup of the Soviet Union. While it was going on, the Baltic states declared their independence, as we've covered in episode 12, Krusty Gets the Singing Revolution. The big, big winner was Boris Yeltsin. Footage of his speech on top of a tank quickly circulated around the world, and he emerged as a hero who stood up to the Soviet armed forces. As for Gorbachev, he retained his position as president of the USR, but the writing was on the wall. 
The USSR was in existence for only a few short months after the coup, but that is a story for another day. Excellent. Yeah, I love studying the Soviet coup because it's a textbook example of how not to do a coup. Because the first problem with it is that when they did that press conference, there were eight of them. And eight people is far too many to organise a coup. You need one person who organises everything. And also, they didn't have a decisive enough plan. They went to Gorbachev, they told him resign, he said no, and then they went, uh, what do we do next? No idea. It sounds rushed. Well, it's not exactly that it was rushed. It was, there, there wasn't a decisive enough plan for it because you do a coup, you have to get everyone on your side straight away. Well, all of the army for a start. All of the army. Some of the army. Yeah. Some of the army isn't enough of the army. Exactly, exactly. You can't have your top generals arguing about what should be done and who is in charge. Yeah, and certainly they weren't ruthless enough. If they wanted to, they could have killed Gorbachev. They could have killed Yeltsin. Yeah. But, you know, and, and letting Yeltsin get to the Russian White House when you knew where he was, you knew he was in his stature, you knew that he was miles away from anywhere. They didn't just uh, did, they didn't just leave the status quo in place. They also created a new hero for the new way, essentially, in, in Yeltsin. Yeah, um, absolutely. Largely by accident, but also by omission. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Yeltsin's stock was riding really high anyway. He'd already humiliated Gorbachev in front of the entire Communist Party. There's that quite famous footage where Yeltsin's going up to the podium where Gorbachev's speaking and he's going, come on, you old fool, get out of the way. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, but that is the Soviet coup and there is plenty more to talk about with the breakup of the Soviet Union and the establishment of the independent republics and what happened next. But, yeah, we'll cover some of that in season three. Excellent. Just want to throw in a quick uh, Soviet Union reference from The Simpsons. Uh, season 9, episode 19, Simpson Tide, which aired long after the breakup of the Soviet Union, features the fantastic exchange at the UN. The Soviet Union will be pleased to offer amnesty to your wayward Wessel. The <laughs> Soviet Union? I thought you guys broke up. Yes, that's what we wanted you to think. <laughs> Presses a button... Yep. Name tag changes, tanks come out in the in the square. And of course, uh, Lenin smashes his way out of his tomb, shouting, must crush capitalism. Yes. Uh, which is our, our memeable moment from that episode, I would think, particularly yeah, with uh, with our old friend Jezza. <laughs> um, but enough about Jezza, enough about the Soviet Union for now, and enough about season two. We've done it. We've got to the end of another season of The Simpsons. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I remind you that you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify, yep. which I forgot to put in my notes, so this must be the old template. <laughs> Going to clear that up for season three. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out the 90s playlist on Spotify. Don't worry, I won't be adding Brian Adams to it 16 times. <laughs> Just the once. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thank you for listening. Yes, thank you very much, everyone. And you know what we do when we get to the end of the season? We finish on a song. Hooray! Cheers. Bye, everyone. Bye. Just, just going to get my guitar.
Well, Seymour, I made it, despite your directions. I hope you're prepared for an unforgettable luncheon. Ye gods, my roast is ruined. But what if I purchased fast food and disguised it as my own cooking? Ha ha ha! Delightfully devilish, Seymour. Superintendent, I was just um, stretching my calves on the windowsill. Isometric exercise. Care to join me? Why is there smoke, Seymour? Oh, that isn't smoke, it's steam from the steam clams we're having. I said steamed hams. That's what I call hamburgers. You call hamburgers steamed hams. It's a regional dialect. What region? Upstate New York. Well, I'm from Utica and I never heard anyone use the phrase steamed hams. Oh, not in Utica, no. It's an Albany expression of family recipe. Oh no no! For steamed hams. You call them steamed hams. They are obviously Well, the time was had by all our thoughts. Yes, I should be. Good luck, what's happening in there? Aurora Borealis. Aurora Borealis. Within your kitchen. Yes, that's it. No. Good hand. 